The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzhak Shachet now presents his lecture, The Journey of a Blessing. Blessing, essentially, is something that we all seek for in our lives. We all yearn for blessings in every material dimension of our existence, primarily health or wealth, children, nachas, and whatever else besides. And in order to achieve that blessing, we pray. We ask of God, which is essentially what prayer is all about. So what we really need to do to properly appreciate the journey of a blessing is to understand in the first instance the very essence of how prayer works and indeed how prayer itself is able to evoke very particular blessings for whatever it is we are looking for in our lives. And I have to begin with an opening question and that is something we all need to ask ourselves and that is simply, what is prayer? You know, they tell of a man who's climbing Mount Everest. He's a self-proclaimed atheist never went to shoal, never believed in anything, and all of a sudden, as he's edging somewhere near the top, he starts losing his footing. And he grabs hold of a branch with both of his hands, and he has no alternative. He looks up, and he cries out. He goes, if there's a God up there, help me, help me, please. And all of a sudden, a voice moves back, do you believe? And he's like, whoa, what? Do you believe? He says, well, I do now. Well, then let go of the branch with your right hand. He says, what, are you kidding me? If I let go of the branch with my right hand, I am reducing my survival chances by 50%. Do you believe? Yes. Then let go of the branch with your right hand, which he proceeds to do. Now what? Do you believe? Well, obviously, I let go of the branch. Now let go of the branch with your left hand. He says, what? Do you believe? I do. Then let go of the branch with your left hand. And he pauses a few moments, looks back up to the heavens and says, listen, is there anyone else up there I can talk to? At the very opening of this week's Torah portion, the opening word after which the Torah portion is named is va'et chanan, and I prayed, and more than just praying. This is Moshe telling the Jewish people how he literally begged and pleaded from God that he be allowed to go into the land of Israel, because as we know, he was denied entry on account of his having hit the rock instead of speaking to it. So he's telling the people, that I literally asked and begged and pleaded to go into the land of Israel. How many times did he ask God? How many times did he pray? Our rabbis tell us the numerical value of the gematria of the word Ba'etchanan is 515. That's how many times he prayed. Imagine, like a child who really, really wants something from a parent, please mommy, please mom, please mommy, over and over again, 515 times he asked of God, to be able to go into the land of Israel. And he also knew that if he pushed the boat out and he would have asked 516th time, the answer would have been yes. So why didn't he do so? We'll come back to that in a minute. And finally, by way of introduction, one other point. The Talmud tells us, there was a rabbi called Rabbi Elazar, and he was expressing the importance of how one should treat their spouse, particularly how one should treat their wives, he says, uh, because since the temple was destroyed, 
all gates of heaven are closed, but for the gate of tears. The gate of tears is always open. And the point he was making was that if you mistreat, then you bring someone into tears, and when they're crying, God hears. So behave yourself. But it begs a bigger question. If all gates of prayer are closed, and the only gate that's open is the gate of tears, where does that leave the rest of us? Frankly, when we are in shul, we don't typically cry. Not unless the chazan is really that bad. So what does it mean? All the gates are closed except for the gate of tears. Then how do we ever hope to have our prayers be heard and achieved and accomplished? So those are the questions we will leave outstanding as we now take a little bit of a journey to understand prayer and ultimately blessing. In your source sheet that you have in front of you, text number one, I'm going to precede this story with a different famous story that is told in the Torah where we know how Korach led a revolt against Moshe. Korach was a rabble-rouser. Korach was envious of Moshe's leadership. And therefore, Korach leads this revolt in which he's challenging Moshe's leadership. More precisely, he didn't have an issue with Moshe being leader. But as far as he's concerned, there's too much nepotism over here. Why does your brother Aaron also get to be the high priest as well? You know, share the wealth, spread it a little wider within the family, because he was a cousin of Moshe and Aaron. And there was a test, a test that Moshe subjected them all to by which he wanted to prove that Aaron was the rightful chosen one to be God's kohen, to be God's priest. He asked each of the tribes to take a particular stick and put it by the side of the sanctuary. And he asked Aaron, on behalf of the tribe of Levi, to do the same. And he said, you will see which one God has demonstrated and chooses to be the actual kohen. And the next day, all the sticks lay there exactly as they were the day before. But for Aaron's stick, Aaron's stick sprouted almonds. There were almonds now growing on the stick. And this proved that God obviously chose his stick, meaning that God chose him to be the Kohen. So the question to be asked is, why almonds? I mean, God can do anything, can perform any sort of miracle can have made any kind of fruit. So God could have made apples grow on the stick. God could have made clementines grow on the stick. Why and what is there if there is indeed any significance in specific to almonds? Of course, you'll ask me, well, why not almonds? If it was going to be apples, you'll say, why apples, etc. Is there something unique? Is there something specific symbolized in particular by the almonds that God made grow on this stick? Now let's look at this story in text number one. So the people of Yehuda, that is from the tribe of Yehuda, took Uziyahu, who was then only 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziahu. So at 16 years old, he succeeds his father to now become the king of the Jewish people, the Judean king. But what happens? What is it that the expression goes, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, when he was strong, imagine you're 16 years old and you're made king. So his heart lifted, it, it lifted up to his destruction. In other words, he became full of himself. He became very arrogant. And he became very excited about the prospects. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. In other words, he's jealous. He's the king. 
but it's not enough. He wants more. If there's one thing he yet does not have on account of being king is the access into the temple to do what kohanim, what priests themselves are able to do. And therefore he decides, okay, I'm taking this for myself as well. Not too dissimilar to our story of Korach that we mentioned before. And then Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 other priests of Hashem who were men of valor, and they witnessed Uzziah, the king, and said to him, it's not for you. It's not for you, Uzziah, to bring incense to Hashem, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to do so. Go out of the sanctuary because you have trespassed. It shall not be your honor from Hashem. In other words, this is not your business. This is not your territory. Be happy with what you have. You're king, for goodness sakes. But being a king does not give you rights of priesthood. You don't get rights of entry into the sanctuary, and you don't have any right whatsoever to go ahead and bring incense, which is the unique domain in particular for the Kahanim themselves. And what happens? Uzziah, of course, is unhappy. How dare you challenge me? How dare you deny me this? But it says then Uzziah was angry, and he had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. You know, I'm still determined. And while he was angry with the priests, Saras, this pseudo-leprosy, broke out on his forehead before the Kahanim in the house of Hashem, beside the incense altar. So that's what happened. All of a sudden, whilst he's there wanting to bring this incense, and the Kahanim tell him, this is not your business, this is not your domain, God, as it were, steps in, and God enables or causes that Saras to start emerging now on his actual forehead. And this Saras, as the Targum, the classic translator, tells us, actually formed in the shape of almonds, as knotted almonds, clustered almonds, as you'll see now in source number two. In text number two, why almonds? So first of all, before we even look at this, let's consider. Once again, we're introduced to almonds. In the story of Karach, almonds growing on the stick. In the case, and that was Karach challenging the priesthood. In the case of Uzziahu, once again, wanting to take some priesthood for himself, now Saras in the shape of almonds growing on his forehead. So Rashi, in the story of Karach, actually explains why almonds. In source number two, why did it bring forth almonds? Because it is a fruit that blossoms earlier than all other fruits. So too, the punishment for one who sets themselves in opposition to the constituent priesthood comes quickly. And then Rashi quotes the story of Uzziah, and the leprosy instantly broke out in his forehead. And then Rashi quotes the Targum, that meaning that it produced a kind of cluster of almonds knotted together one upon the other. So there you have it. Almonds in response to Korah's challenge of Aaron's priesthood. Almonds, well, leprosy, as it were, in the shape of almonds in response to Uzziah challenging priesthood. And Rashi explains why almonds, because almonds actually is a fruit that blossoms quicker than all other fruits. And if you challenge priesthood, then punishment will come upon you very quickly as well. It kind of makes sense. Almonds blossom quickly, punishment will come quickly, but it still begs a bigger question as to the correlation and the connection between the two. There are other ways you can symbolize bringing quick punishment without the need to necessarily go about it through almonds in specific. So true to mystical style, Hasidism 
puts an altogether different, fascinating and beautiful spin on all of this in the following way. And here we go into a general conversation about prayer. Look in source number three, it says here text three and four. This is a text from the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, which relays a dispute about when judgment takes place. You and I typically assume that we get judged on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are our days of judgment. And that's why we're all on Shul and that's why we're all praying. Well, believe it or not, not everybody agrees with that. Have a look at the Talmud over here. Hakol Nidon Eber Rosh Hashanah was taught all are judged on Rosh Hashanah and the sentence is sealed on Yom Kippur. That's the way we always understand it. That is the statement of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yehuda says all are judged on Rosh Hashanah and their sentence is sealed each in its own time, which means on Pesach the sentence is sealed concerning grain. God determines ultimately how much grain there's going to grow in the coming year on Pesach. On Shavuot, concerning the fruits that grow on the tree. And on the festival of Sukkot, they are judged concerning water. And mankind is judged in Rosh Hashanah and the sentence is sealed on Yom Kippur. So as far as you and I are concerned over here, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda are very much on the same page vis-a-vis -vis man. That man is judged on Rosh Hashanah and the judgment is sealed on Yom Kippur. And again, that's the way we always know it, right? That's what they taught us in Cheder, that's what they taught us in school, that's the way we're always being educated. Comes along Rabbi Yossi, and he says, a person is judged every day, and not just once a year. As it is stated, he quotes a verse from Job, you visit him every single morning, means that every morning an accounting is made and a judgment is passed. Rabbi Yosef then comes along and asks, in accordance with whose opinion do we pray nowadays on a daily basis for the sick and afflicted? And the Gemara repeats the question, in accordance with whose opinion? It's in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yossi. So what do we have over here? We have over here an argument about when judgment takes place. Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda tell us that judgment actually takes place on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rabbi Yossi comes along and tells us, actually, no. Judgment takes place, in actual fact, every single day. And there's another opinion, though it's not translated over here. Rabbi Nassim says, every hour of every single day. And then, true to Talmudic style, Rabbi Yosef comes along, not to be confused with Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yosef comes along and asks the question, so according to whom, or in accordance with whom, do we pray today? And the answer is, obviously, in accordance with Rabbi Yossi, because, after all, we pray every single day, which means we're praying every day because we're judged every day. And now look at the italics over here, which is quoting from Rashi. Like Rabbi Yossi, who says that man is judged every day and he should pay, pray, that should read, he should pray that he will be judged meritoriously and will not be, God forbid, sentenced to death. For if it were like the rabbis, meaning Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, who say he's only judged in Rosh Hashanah, then it's already sentenced upon him. In other words, if the opinion was, like Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, we'll call them the rabbis, that we get judged on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, then why do we indeed pray every day? There's no point to it. Obviously, the fact that we pray every single day is in accordance with Rabbi Yossi, who says we get judged every day. And that leaves us with two outstanding questions, two fundamental questions. Because at the end of the day, 
the prayer that we have every single day was instituted by the men of the Great Assembly. These were great men, 120 giants. Mordecai, from the very famous Purim story, was one of these 120 men of the Great Assembly, and many other greats besides. Lofty spiritual giants, prophets, great men of stature. They didn't just pull things out of a hat to introduce for the sake of it. Everything they introduced and everything they implemented was entirely by divine inspiration. And thus, when they introduce us to the Amida, the Shemana Esrei, the primary part of our daily prayer service, it's something that was instituted by divine inspiration. And once they institute it, it de facto therefore becomes an integral part of our daily ritual. Hence, we say that Amida three times a day, morning and afternoon, and then also evening. Morning and afternoon is absolute obligation. Evening became later on obligatory as well. So there's the question. According to the rabbis, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, we're only judged on Rosh Hashanah. And as Rashi quotes over here, according to them, there's no point in praying every day. Well, how do you ignore the fact that the men of the Great Assembly introduced prayer for every single day? Why? According to Rabbi Yossi, it makes perfect sense. We're judged every day, we pray every day. That's why the men of the Great Assembly introduces prayer every day. But according to them, where we're only judged in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, why indeed do we pray every day? And it seems from the Talmud over here that as far as they're concerned, we would not need to pray every single day. And yet, how can you say that when the men of the Great Assembly understood through divine intervention and inspiration that you should? <laughs> to the flip side, we can ask a bigger question. Why, oh why, do we have to spend, according to Rabbi Yossi, so many hours in Shul on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? If you're being judged every day, and that's why you pray every single day, and that's why you say the Amida every single day, then what are we doing spending countless hours on Rosh Hashanah and Shul, and even many more hours on Yom Kippur and Shul? There's no real difference, as far as he's concerned, between Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and all the other days of the year when, in fact, judgment is taking place every single day. So plain and simply put, According to the rabbis, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, let's just daven on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur all day long and take the rest of the year off. And according to Rabbi Yossi, let's daven on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur as short as we do every single day. Just keep it to a bare minimum as we do throughout the rest of the year. Either way, according to whichever opinion, we should be able to take some kind of shortcut over here. Now let me refer you to source number five. Indeed, one of the questions that is asked, it's a Talmud elsewhere, but Rabbeinu Tam asks the question elsewhere. He says, according to both Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda, what does prayer, that is daily prayer, accomplish? Because it says in Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Meir says, everyone is judged in Rosh Hashanah, and their verdict is sealed on Yom Kippur. Rabbi Yehuda says, everyone is judged in Rosh Hashanah, and each verdict is sealed in its own time. Grain on Passover, mankind in Yom Kippur, asking essentially the same question. According to them, what's the point and purpose of daily prayer? And to the flip side, we have in text number six, a Talmud elsewhere, which says very categorically that a person's entire livelihood is allocated to them during the period from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. And during that time, as each individual is judged, it is decreed exactly how much money they will earn for all their expenditures for the coming year, except for the expenditures of Shabbos, Yom Tif, and school fees, etc. In these areas, no amount is determined 
At the beginning of the year, if you give less, you spend less, you will get less. If you give more, you will spend more, you will receive more. So basically, we have the two questions that we just asked encapsulated within this very question that Rabbeinu Tam asks, according to Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda, why indeed do we pray every day? And yet, to the flip side, you find the Talmud saying very categorically that on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, things are predetermined. In other words, there's clearly judgment happening then. So, which way is it? And what do we to make of all this? Look at text number seven. Just a final point in all of this. This is a quote from the Machser. We actually say this in our prayer services in Rosh Hashanah. Over countries, judgment is pronounced. Which of them is destined for the sword? Which for peace? Which for famine? Which for abundance? And on it, in other words, on the day of Rosh Hashanah, everybody, everything is brought to mind to be remembered for either life or, God forbid, the contrary. Who is not considered on this day, meaning this day of Rosh Hashanah? For the remembrance of all that is formed comes before you, etc., etc., etc. In the Machser itself, we're highlighting the fact that judgment is taking place on this day. Actually confirming the opinion of Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. And begging the question as to Rabbi Yassi. So we have these outstanding questions. We need some clarity. There's a lot of mumble jumble over here. There's a lot of haze about which one is it? When does judgment take place? How does judgment take place? Why do we pray every day? Why do we pray so long on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? How do we make sense of all of this? And this is where the beauty of Jewish mysticism, and more precisely Hasidism, comes in to actually clarify what otherwise could remain and probably does remain to a fair extent in a lot of people's minds, even Talmudic scholars, a bit of a mumble-jumble, as I say. Look in text number eight, and let's consider. This is a tract, Kuntur Samayan, authored by the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he talks a lot over there about the significance and the importance and the power of prayer. And he says as follows. Hence, it may be understood, Rabbi Yossi and the sages do not, in fact, disagree at all. But they're addressing completely different matters. Ignore the brackets here. The sages speak of the spiritual illumination and energy to be drawn forth, and this is, of course, included in the judgment of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. For the great benefit that one will be elicited in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur includes this spiritual aspect. And this descends then daily in a manner of hishtal shalut, and is not new. So in other words, there's a certain spiritual judgment that takes place on Rosh Hashanah. We'll clarify that in a moment. And then that goes through a daily process of trickling through on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we get every day is not necessarily new. It's just a process that continues from what was already judged on Rosh Hashanah. Thus, there is no judgment for it. In other words, every single day. The judgment is on Rosh Hashanah. But daily, there isn't judgment, per se, but merely calling to mind and scrutiny. Rabbi Yossi agrees to this view. His own statement, however, refers to the actual physical configuration, which is the basic benef beneficence granted according to the requirements of each day in the form of actual material blessings. This material form is new and hence subject to full daily judgment, and to this, to this the sages agree. What does that actually mean? Rather than me explain it to you, I'm going to take you straight into text number nine, where the Rebbe himself actually explains this in a mimer, in a, in a Hasidic discourse. And he says as follows, 
the source of everything is from God's chesed, chesed of Atsilos. In other words, that the highest level of God's kindness and compassion, that's the source of all the goodness that we receive here in this world. And in order for it to be brought into actuality in the form of children and health and sustenance, it's through descending through all the levels from Atsilos through Asiya, and at each, at each level of descent there is judgment whether the blessing should continue descending or stay at that level. That is unbelievable. That is so profound. Let me give it to you by way of example. You have a professor, and he's won the Nobel Prize for his innovation in economics. And now he wants to explain his theory to his students. And in order for him to take his theory and explain it to his students, he has to break it down into so many different parts. There's a lot of translation that has to take place over here. He has to explain in the first instance about what the problem was in the first instance that led him to his theory. He then has to extrapolate and explain in great detail what the theory is, and then he has to explain about how the theory solves the problem. So there's a lot of translation that gets involved over here. There's a lot of work that he has to put into taking his knowledge, his theory, his ideas, and breaking it down for his students. A lot of, shall we say, distilled thoughts. Begging but one simple question. Why bother? Why on earth should the professor put himself through the pain and the nuisance and the agony of taking his brilliance, for which he's already won his Nobel Prize, and spend all of that energy trying to break it down for the benefit of his students. Something must compel him to go ahead and want to do so. And the answer is yes, students. When there's a demonstrated keen interest from the students, then they in turn evoke that passion from the teacher. And the more they show they want to learn, then the more he's going to respond and give accordingly to them. So essentially, it starts with the students in the first instance. It starts with them. They come to the professor. We want to understand, why did you win this prize? We want to understand, what was the problem? How does your theory work? How does it solve the problem? Teach us, please. And when they do that, and they come forth, they evoke from him then the desire to go through the hassle, if you will, and expend the energy to now explain it in great detail for them to be able to better understand. Now look in source number nine, continuation. This is why we pray daily. Heal us, bless us, even though this is already decided on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because the judgment in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur only bring it to the level of, and now he's quoting from the earlier text in source number eight, only the level of chesed in atzilus. And in order for the blessing to be expressed physically, it is only through the descent through chesed of malchus, of Atsilos and then into Chesed Abria and further on. And then over on to the next page, this then is the explanation of man is judged every day. Because although judgment was already passed on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, that was only enough to bring it to the person as he is above in Atsilos. And every day he's judged whether that kindness that was already bestowed on his soul above should descend further and be expressed physically or stay above and provide him with spiritual pleasure. And that's why we pray daily that the kindness which was allotted in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur 
should be expressed in the physical world and in physical manifestation. Because since the kindness above is in a spiritual form, even after it is approved to descend, there is another judgment whether it should manifest itself physically or spiritually. And that's why it was established to pray the 12 intermediate blessings of the Amidah, the Shemana Esrei, every day, because they contain all of man's personal and communal needs. The Rebbe over here is essentially explaining what the Rebbe Rashab said in Kuntra Samaya. In plain and simple terms, on Rosh Hashanah, God determines that you are going to get a million dollars this year. You say, Amen, Halavai. And then, the problem is, that that's what's determined, and that's, that, that's up there. And it's up in the higher world of Atsilos. It's God's kindness in the highest world of the four higher world, upper worlds. You have a problem still. You need to access it down here. God can promise you a million dollars. That gets put into your bank account. But now you still need a bank card, a debit card, or whatever it is you call it here, to put into the machine to be able to take out money every single day. Otherwise, the million dollars just stays there in the bank account. And it's there, and it's yours, and you'll have all kinds of pleasure knowing I've got a million dollars in the account. But what good is that to you if you cannot directly access it to be able to take up money every day and benefit from that money every single day in whichever way you so want? And that's essentially why there's no argument whatsoever, as the Rebbe Roshab was saying in source number eight, why there was no, in source number 10, rather, why there was no argument why there was no argument between Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehud, and Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehud say we get judged in Rosh Hashanah. Absolutely. That's when God determines how much money is going to go into your account for the coming year. And God determines that at that highest level of what we call chesed atzilus in the highest world and God's compassion as it is manifest over there. Rabbi Yossi comes along and says you've got to still pray every single day. And there's no argument. As in as much as he agrees, you'll get judged in Rosh Hashanah how much will get put into your account. You still have to pray every single day to determine how much of that you're going to be able to access and experience. How much of that can you draw down to have in your own life? And that's why the Rebbe focuses on the fact that the 12 intermediary blessings that we have in the Amidah, in every Amidah over the course of a weekday, are all the same. You have the three introductory blessings, the three concluding blessings, but the 12 intermediary blessings incorporate all aspects of our needs in our lives. Whether it's knowledge, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's health, whether it's sustenance, and whatever else besides. So when you want all that stuff, you want to incorporate everything, you therefore pray every day to be able to keep taking money. If you don't, then that money is still there for you. You'll still benefit from it. How? I don't know. Your neshama, your soul, as he says, will be able to have some kind of pleasure from it. But it's not practical, it's not tangible, it's not something you're going to experience in a real way. It's when you get judged daily and you pray daily to evoke positive judgment, to draw from that highest level of chesed into a practical, experienced chesed here in your own day-to-day -day living. That's why you've got to pray every day as well. That judgment transpires every day as well. But now here comes a little bit of a hard part. A story. This comes back to the Rebbe Rashab in Kuntra Samayan, and he says as follows. Here, the prayer of a tzaddik can be effective, changing the decree from one particular to another. This will help us understand a story. 
that occurred with the Baal Shem Tov, someone repeatedly implored him to pray on his behalf that he be blessed with children. The man was quite wealthy, and the Baal Shem Tov made no reply to the man's pleas. It's quite apparent from this that the man repeatedly asked but didn't get a response. And the man and his wife exerted themselves greatly, begging the Baal Shem Tov to pray for them. And the Baal Shem Tov sensed their deep sincerity and told them, you ready for this? That if they will have children, they will lose their wealth and become impoverished. The couple chose children in poverty and that came to pass. What happened in effect was that the beneficiaries elicited for that person through the heavenly court for wealth was altered by the Balshamtov at its source for children instead. The chesed allotted to the man and his wife was not for two forms. And prayer could change its form, children in place of wealth. It's a hard one, but it takes for a tzaddik to know that. In other words, that the Baal Shem Tov knew that as far as God's chesed is concerned, as far as the judgment each year in Rosh Hashanah was concerned, and as far as the daily prayer and judgment is concerned, it was determined for them that they'd be able to continue to experience an abundance of wealth each year in Rosh Hashanah and subsequent to that every day as they may pray. And in their particular case, which only a tzaddik like the Baal Shem Tov might have known, is that as far as they were concerned, it was intended to be specifically for one form, not two forms. And if they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing, the Baal Shem Tov told them the reality as it stands, and okay, the chesed can be altered from the wealth to children instead, which is what they opted for. 515 times Moshe begs and pleads from God to let him into the land of Israel. Note a number of mystics, had he prayed 516th time, God would have granted his request. Why didn't he do so? Because he knew that there was a certain something over here, but it became obvious to him, and he knew that if he crossed that line from 515 to 516, he'd be changing some other aspect of destiny. So he pushed the boat out as far as he knew he can push it the 515 times, but he also knew if he was going to cross that line into 516, God would grant it, but then something else would change, like in this story over here with the Baal Shem Tov. The point being that whenever we pray, God is always answering. We just have to have sufficient humility to appreciate that sometimes the answer is no, even if we don't always get it. But it doesn't stop there. Because now let's look at text number 11. Here the Rebbe makes a point. Any obstacle that can occur as it is drawn down from level to level is only when the desire for the item is logical. However, if the desire is due to pleasure, and especially if it is an existential pleasure, then the transfer from desire to action is speedily, without delay. In other words, here's the good news, that in as much as, and let me refer you back to the original analogy of the professor and his students. Before we spoke about the fact that for the professor to be able to communicate his thoughts to his students and distill all of his thinking, he has to break it down, but that has to come from them in the first instance. His only real reason for wanting to do so is because they elicit it from him because they have the real desire to learn, says the Rebbe over here in text number 11, that there are exceptions to this rule. Because everything we said until now 
is when it follows through what we would call a logical process of teacher and students, etc. But what if, what if the teacher has an innate desire and yearning simply to teach? then regardless of how much the students necessarily want to learn, it's got nothing to do with them whatsoever. The only issue here is that the teacher wants to teach and he'll go looking for the students and he'll teach them even if they don't necessarily want to learn. And he'll share his knowledge and his wisdom and go through whatever is required and expend his energy to educate them, even if they're not always necessarily willing, yearning, desiring, etc. So everything we said until now is all through what we would call a logical process. That's the normal system. Everything we said until now, I hope, was understood. And obviously, it makes sense. But sometimes it doesn't have to make sense. Sometimes it could just be the innate, deepest yearning and desire, tainug atzmi, of the teacher to be able to just share with his students. Again, looking at those words. The obstacles that are from level to level is only when you follow through a logical process where I have to then beg and I have to ask. It has to come from the student. I have to be judged every day. I have to pray every day. But if the desire is due to pleasure, the teacher just wants to give. And especially if it's an existential pleasure, then the transfer from desire to action is speedily without delay, regardless of me, myself. God is chafitz chesed He desires to share and to give and to show love and compassion. It is the innate nature of somebody who is inherently good to only do good. And God, who is absolute goodness and perfection, only wants to do good. And we say it in our davening on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. He does good, he is good, and therefore extends goodness. Not just to good people, but even those who may be undeserving. Without any cheshbonis, without any calculations, without any thinking whatsoever. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with the fact that the teacher just simply wants to give me. And now we come back to almonds. Source number 12. Almonds, as Rashi told us at the beginning, are the, of all the, are the fastest of all the fruits and grain to bud. For example, olives, grapes, and wheat. This is all from Derech Mitzvah from the Tzemach Tzedek. The third Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he says, all take longer to blossom. Almonds are ripened in three weeks from the budding. Therefore, they are called shkedim, which means speedy. And unlike what Rashi told us at the beginning, that just like almonds blossom quickly, punishment comes upon those who challenge priesthood quickly, Hasidism comes along and says, and this speediness hints to the priesthood. Because the word Aharon, who was the name of the high priest at the time, is the same letters, if you invert the letters, Aharon is the same letters as the word nera which means to be seen. Through Aharon, all revelations and drawing from above to below is accomplished, and these are accomplished through him with great speed and without delay. In other words, by definition, in the first instance, what we're being told over here is that Kohanim have the unique ability of triggering, if you will, this deeper innate yearning and desire in God up above. By virtue of who he is and what he represents, he has this ability to evoke from God that deeper desire to just give speedily, without delay, without the whole judgment process, but just simply to give. If we spoke about a certain type of teacher that transcends logic, just simply wants to give and teach because of an innate desire to do so, it's Aharon who triggers that quick, speedy process, like almonds which blossom quickly. Aharon, as a Kohen, 
is able to achieve the same. And not just Aaron, but indeed Al-Kohanim, text number 13. This is the Alter Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, in his Lakute Torah, on the portion of Karach. And he says, however, when the light and flow is brought down through Aaron and his descendants, the Kohanim, who raise their hands and bless the people with the priestly blessing, then the flow is delivered speedily through all the worlds without being stopped by severity at all. You know how we all go to Shoal, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we're certainly all there, and the Kohanim do the blessing where they bless the congregation? That's what he's talking about over here. And on every festival, the Kohanim are blessing the congregation. In Israel, more frequently, but we reserve it in specific for the Chagim, for the Jewish festivals. Why? Because v'samachto b'chagecha, you're supposed to rejoice in your festivals. You are rejoicing, you are happy, you're in a better frame of mind by virtue of it being a festival, and when you are in a better frame of mind, you are more susceptible to be able to receive the blessings from God that the Kohanim are now bestowing upon you. But this ability that Aharon has to go ahead and evoke from God that deeper desire to just give speedily, without any obstruction whatsoever. That's something that all of his descendants have the ability to achieve as well when they bless us every single festival through the Birchat Kohanim. This is the idea of the priestly blessing, it continues. May God bless you when you say those words, God should bless you and God should always watch over you. What does that mean? God should bless you with money, bless you with children, and indeed protect you from any harm. And when they're saying those words, what happens? That upper chesed that we spoke about earlier, that's always up there in that higher world of atzilus, etc., is brought down into physicality to be manifested as a blessing of children, of sustenance, speedily, without any issues, without any obstruction. And then the Altar Rebbe gives over here a brilliant analogy, a brilliant example. The example for this is a rushing river whose water moves so fast that it cannot be stopped. A smaller river, the water can be stopped and redirected with wood or dirt, and a mill or a bridge can be built upon it. But a large river cannot be stopped by these things, and it will continue to flow and sweep away the wood or the dirt. The parable is the blessing which is brought down from heaven speedily, and all judgments are removed from its way. And what he's saying over here is simply this. There are two types of rivers. There are those rivers that flow, and after a while, there are stones and twigs and mud and whatever else besides that kind of dams up the water. And after that, the water starts trickling through. And that's the reality, or sorry, that can be the reality of our blessings in the sense that in the first instance, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, there's water flowing. God determines how much we're going to have in the coming year. But then over the course of time, maybe things that are going on in our lives and things that we may be doing or not doing as we should be doing, etc., is creating a little bit of an obstacle, building a little bit of a dam of some sort, such that God already predetermined in Rosh Hashanah when I was a good boy and I was there and I was praying and begging, but now I've built up a little bit of a dam that can even form as a bridge or whatever sort. And now the water will only start trickling through to be able to reach me down here. Or, I'm being judged every day, and I can pray. 
And I pray by recognition of the fact that I'm being judged every day, and I can encourage the water to come through even stronger than that. But for Kahanim, it's an altogether different story. For Kahanim, it's a rushing river. When there is a rushing river and the water is flowing at incredibly top speed, then regardless of whatever twigs and dirt and whatever else besides, it doesn't get in the way. It just keeps flowing and keeps flowing and keeps flowing. And Kahanim have that very real ability to achieve that on our behalf. Aaron did at that point in time, and it's reflected, as we said, in the reference to almonds, which blossom very quickly. But we all have that very real ability through the Kahanim that pray on our behalf and bless us on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, on the other festivals throughout the course of the year as well. But bear in mind that that aside, when we are in Shul and we are davening and the one who is leading the service is repeating the repetition of the Amidah every single day, also recites that same Berchat Kohanim in the morning prayers, that same priestly blessing. Begging the one still outstanding question, where does that leave the rest of us? Because at the end of the day, we're not Kohanim, and at the end of the day, we still have to wait, what, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur? Is it really the same when the Chazan is doing it in the morning in Shul? So here's an interesting thought. Final source, source number 14. Rambam is talking, Maimonides, about the laws of the sabbatical year, the jubilee year, etc. And he talks about certain specific responsibilities of the tribe of Levi, from which Kohanim come. And then he makes the most astounding statement in conclusion over there. And he says, not only the tribe of Levi, but each well-informed thinking person whose spirit moves him to devote himself to the service of the Lord, to know the Lord, and has walked uprightly after casting off his neck the yoke of many a cunning while that men contrived, is indeed divinely consecrated, and the Lord will forever and ever be his portion. God will provide sufficiently for his needs, as he did for the Kohanim and the Leviim as well. So what Rambam is telling us very categorically over here is that every single one of us has that same power as any Kohen. Every single one of us has that very same ability. Yes, it's true there is a unique made of Kahanim. Yes, it's true that they give us the special blessing. Yes, it's true that Aaron was special and he's the one who was able to make it like a flowing, like a rushing river. But Rambam is telling us over here in a very different context, which I'm tying into the bigger theme of everything we're discussing over here, is that essentially every single one of us can be like a Kahanim. Sure, they have a unique domain, they have a unique status, they are different, they are a certain type of elite tribe, granted. But, and again, look at the emphasis, well-informed thinking person, that's what the Ramam says, who's motivated by his own spirit, and he chooses to remove, and he's focused on the service of God appropriately, which is essentially what prayer is all about, to acknowledge the reality of God's existence, and removes from his neck all the different cheshbonas, as he says over here. In other words, you have all these different things that burden you and that weigh you down and that make you question and that really plague your day-to-day -day living. Get rid of all of that. Put your absolute faith, put your absolute trust in God. Make that your focus, especially when you are davening, when you are praying. Then you become sanctified like you yourself are on the holy of holies. God becomes your inheritance and God provides for you, just like he did to the Kohanim Leviim, or indeed through the Kohanim and the Leviim. We all have that power. Which takes us back to that Talmudic statement, all the gates are closed except for the gate of tears. Note, 
It doesn't actually say that the gates are locked. But in reality, think about this. You are best friends with somebody so close such that you can actually literally go wandering into each other's homes, right? That happens. You can be so friendly with somebody. I go into your home, you come into my home, etc. And then one day, we have a falling out. Well, I can't just go wandering into your home anymore. Now I have to, your door might be closed and I have to come knocking in order for you to let me in. And that's really the way it happened as well in regard to our relationship with God. To be sure, we kind of had the falling out with him on account of ourselves. As a result of which the doors were closed, the base of Mikdosh was destroyed, which just came out of Tisha And now if you want to get into God, you've got to knock that little bit louder. It doesn't say the doors are sealed. Yes, the gate of tears is always open. But what does that really represent? We today, as our rabbis tell us, have prayer in place of the sacrifices that used to be brought in temple times. That's what our prayer was really instituted for. The men of the great assembly that I referenced at the outset, that introduced the whole prayer service, did so in direct response to the absence of the sacrificial procedure. Until that point, you could bring sacrifices, and there was no organized prayer as such. When you brought the sacrifice, or more precisely, the Kohen brought the sacrifice in your behalf, you would say whatever words came to your mind and heart at that moment in time. And the significance of bringing that sacrifice was because it represented you sacrificing your own animalistic self. I mean, the closest any person can get to God, really, if you think about it, would be to sacrifice themselves, take their own lives so their souls can go ascend back upwards. But we abhor that approach in the Jewish religion. So the next best thing is that you bring an animal that represents your own animalistic self. And when you're sacrificing, essentially you're sacrificing your own animalistic traits, your appetitive powers, and so on and so forth. So now, in the absence of a temple, we have prayer. Prayer is in place of the sacrifice. But in order for prayer to achieve the same thing that the sacrifice achieved, you've got to get yourself into that same frame of mind. In that moment, you can't have your mobile, your cell phone in front of you. In that moment, you can't be having a conversation or a joke with the friend next to you. In that moment, you have to be like in the words of the Talmud, in a state not of actual tears, but in a state of self-abnegation, in a state of total commitment to God in a state of where right now the only focus is heavenward. And when you are able to get yourself into that zone when you are praying, then you are very much like the Kohen who was bringing the sacrifice on behalf of the individual on the altar in temple times as well. And just like the Kohen had the very real ability to bring down blessings like a rushing river without any obstruction, then we have that very same and very real ability as well. Make no mistake about it. And therefore, essentially, and in summation, there is judgment on Rosh Hashanah, absolutely so. And it gets sealed on Yom Kippur. And we're there for all the extra hours, like Rabbi Meir and like Rabbi Yehuda, because that's when it all gets predetermined in the first instance. That's when the million dollars plus gets put into our bank account. And then, then we get judged every single day as well to determine how much we can draw out of that account as well. But we have the ability to evoke from God that innate desire to want to give us in abundance, like a rushing river. 
by simply putting ourselves in the same frame of mind as the Kohanim would do when they prayed on our behalf, when they sacrificed on our behalf, as they do today through the actual priestly blessings as well. So my prayer is for each and every one of you and all of us that indeed all of our prayers should be answered, that all of our blessings should be bestowed upon us like a rushing river without any obstacles whatsoever, that God continue to give us in abundance. Yes, let's stay focused on our prayer. Let's appreciate what we're doing and indeed how we're supposed to be doing it. But let's just bypass all of the judgment per se and let's not even be limited like in that particular story of the Baal Shem Tov. Let God give it to us in multi-parts, as the Rebbe said, that's why we have the 12 blessings in the Amidah, to be able to get it from all ends, given to us in abundance, in the most open and revealed way here in our own personal lives forevermore, and with the ultimate blessing of the coming of Mashiach speedily. Amen and thank you. How does that uh, fit in with the, do we each individual have a power to bless when we, when we say l'chaim or when we give someone a bracha, or the, the kayak that a person has on their birthday, how does that tie into what we were talking today? It's a very fair question. In the words of the Gemara, let not the blessing of even a simpleton be light in your eyes, because in that moment, you don't know if they're not functioning as a conduit on behalf of above. It could be a unique Esrat, so in a particularly auspicious time, when, let's just put it in blunt terms, God is in a particularly good and giving mood, as it were, and that could be one of those moments where regardless, notwithstanding the fact that there are certain ways that we, again, evoke or trigger that tainogatsmi, that innate desire to give, there can be other moments through every given day that are auspicious moments in time, such that when that person in that moment is giving you that blessing, don't disregard it, embrace it, answer amen, because you don't know that what he's saying at that moment isn't being particularly adhered to up above to be responded to. And when it comes to a birthday, it's the same point. That's when we say mazole goiver, that one's own, one has a greater spiritual energy through which they have a greater ability to indeed give blessing and again, to evoke that greater desire from up above. I think I understood you're saying that with judgment, it's not punishment, it's simply that you will get greater abundance and good, but God is not punishing. No, the word judgment, doesn't imply punishment. Judgment means get judged. Judged can also be for, for the good. I'm okay. going to judge right now whether I'm going to give you $5 or $100. Okay. So is there anything that we can do that would cause the heavenly million dollars to be taken away? Hmm. Um, no, actually, it's a fair, very fair question. Once God has predetermined in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that you're going to get that million dollars, then it's there no matter what. What you might assume to be the case that it's taken away is not the case. It's there, it just may not come all the way down to you, and that's very much dependent on how you respond to that daily judgment, as it were. So it just won't ever be accessible? I won't say it won't ever, it's there. It can always be accessible, but that's down to you. Okay. Otherwise, as we mentioned over here, on some level, your soul is still benefiting from it, experiencing it. Again, how, I don't know, but it does. So one way or the other, you're benefiting from it. But as we say, Michael Tavis, don't do me any favors. My soul, I'm, I'm okay with that. I just, I want, I want the million dollars in my hand. Okay, thank you.
Hi, thank you so much. I wanted to ask, um, when Hashem gives us the blessing in Rosh Hashanah, could there be additional blessings during the year that Hashem grants us and not necessarily was given on Rosh Hashanah? Uh, in regard to a lot of other things, perhaps yes. But where Judaism seems to put a lot of particular emphasis and Hasidism concurs with that, and maybe I stand to be corrected, what you're going to earn in terms of practical money that is determined in the first instance on Rosh Hashanah. And frankly, it doesn't matter how many extra hours you think you spend in the office is going to earn you that much more. That isn't the case. But more on that when we give the talk on the Kabbalah of economics. Um, as far as we're concerned right now, there are other ways and other means by which, yes, chesed can be given to us throughout the course of a year. But the Gemara says very categorically there, like we said, that when you do choose to add in your expenses of Shabbos and Yom Tov, because you're showing how much you want to derive pleasure in God's holy days, God will give you back the same and more. And likewise with education, things that are fundamental to Jewish life and living. But in regard to general income per se, etc., it is what it is. We don't know what it is, so we just keep trying to access. Yeah, general brachas can always be added, 100%. Absolutely so. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.